Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Our guest is Jennifer Vogan. She's a skater, surfer, single mom, and more significantly, an HIV advocate who went from an AIDS diagnosis to undetectable. Jennifer was diagnosed with HIV in February 2016. And since then, she has become an outspoken and active advocate for other HIV-positive women. As a straight, white, middle-aged, non-drug-using mom, Jennifer did not fit the typical profile. At the time of her diagnosis, her T-cell count was at 87, a staggeringly low count, considering a normal count ranges between 500 and 1500. Several nights she went to sleep, wondering if she would wake up the next day. As a 45-year-old single mother of three, she thought her life was over. Within one month of treatment, however, Jennifer was living her life again. Due to daily medication delivered in the form of a single pill, she was back at work and back to surfing and skating shortly. After some consideration, she chose to tell her story to her Facebook family. The response was incredible, receiving endless messages of love, concern and support. It felt safe to be open about this new diagnosis that most still regarded as the modern day plague. As Jennifer also felt that she could help others, she decided to post a video about her story on YouTube. Due in part to her matter-of-fact attitude and honest no-nonsense style, this video went viral. Advocating for HIV and fighting stigma became her new passion. This was never a part Jennifer saw for herself, but it was happening and it felt right. Today, her channel has over 47,000 subscribers. She posts regularly, answering questions on a wide range of topics. Her willingness to be so open about her status and her life post-diagnosis has helped many other HIV-positive people around the world and has led Jennifer to live a life she's never imagined. Outside of her day job and family, Jennifer uses every extra moment to continue her efforts in fighting against the spread of this virus to advocacy. She has encouraged hundreds to test, counseled individuals daily about fears, misinformation, education, and stigma. The numerous comments and messages she receives daily confirm the difference she is making in the world of HIV. So 
hi Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm happy uh, to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, it's a pleasure. Listen, I'd like to start with the beginning. On February 15th in 2016, you were diagnosed with HIV and you were 45 years old, if I'm not mistaken, at the time. About a week later, you were told it was AIDS. And I have been following you on social media, so I know a little bit how it's been for you. But for the sake of our audience, to really understand where you come from, could you please tell us a little bit your story, how you found out about your status and how you went quickly from an HIV diagnosis into full-blown AIDS and how this impacted your life? Yeah, um, so it's almost been four years since this all kind of happened. I was just thinking about that this morning. I was, I was laying here in bed like, wow, four years has already gone by. We just started getting sick um, in the wintertime and weeks and weeks of just not knowing what was going on. And I thought I had a parasite. I was certain I had a parasite in my body from surfing. I thought that's got to be what it is because I'm just ill from head to toe. You know, they kept sending me away from the doctor saying it was just viral. It'll go away. Take ibuprofen and it should get better. Wasn't. And symptoms just continued to get more severe. And so they finally sent me to a specialist who said, I'm just going to test you for everything. And he asked if he could test me for HIV because they have to. And it was like, just, I was like, yes to everything. It didn't even cross my mind that it was that. I was like, oh yeah, of course, just throw that in the mix. Just test me for everything. Let's find out what this is. Within hours, I had to call back from the doctor and he said, I'm not really sure how to tell you this, but you've tested positive for the HIV antibody. And it was like the last thing I expected to hear. And here I am in this one-year relationship with this uh, man in my life who's sitting across the room from me, staring at me like, what, did he, what is he saying? What is he? Because we all wanted to know what was wrong with me. Yeah. Because my blood results, my blood results had come back strange. Things were abnormal, and they didn't know what it was. And I just looked at him and I said, it, "It's." He said, "It's HIV." Like I remember looking at him, just thinking, "Well, that relationship's over. Like he's not going to stay." Like what? And, and I really, it was so much to take in in that moment, and I was already so sick. It was like the thought of this. What, it just made it a thousand times worse. It was like, oh, this is, I did this. I've done something and I, I made a mistake and I created this and now now I'm going to lose everything. And I'm a mom and oh my God, like how do I, like it, everything hit me all at once. It was like the worst thing you could even think of. Like, I mean, how, how am I supposed to like take this all in? So I did accept almost immediately that I had to be that because in my mind, I'm like, the tests don't lie. I believe doctors. And I thought, well, we finally got an answer because we've been wondering nothing was coming up for anything. And then we get this positive. It's like, it's got to be that. Um, and so I was too sick at the time to even like really search my phone and just obviously in shock to even look and see anything about HIV. All I knew was devastation. I just knew, you know, everything from the 80s. And I knew that it's, you know, I know all the stigma about it. It's dirty. You're a bad person. You did something bad. Yeah, the um, feeling of guilt, obviously. obviously. Oh, yeah. Just total shame. My daughter looked it up right away and said, you know, she's 15 at the time. And just said, you know, mom, this isn't, people don't die from this today. And I, this is something, you know, it looks like it's really treatable. And I think the doctor had said something like that, too. And he'd also put in my head that this could be a false positive. I think he just didn't know what to tell me. He said he'd seen those before. And I, I kind of held on to that hope, but I was like, I, this has just got to be what it is. So I went with that thought, even though Eric still felt my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband. He thought at the time that it, it let's not go with this. It may, it's got to be something else. There's no way it's this. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, no, I think it is. And by the next day, I see a doctor who prescribes me medication. 
right away. I go to the pharmacy. I just want to get better. I just want to get better. So I take the medication almost in private, and it was my way of accepting it, but I couldn't even take it in front of Eric. I didn't want him to know that I really believe this is what it was. It took me about four days to find out who it had come from, uh, just to track him down. I had a feeling that I knew who it might have come from. It was somebody who had used needles. Um, in his past, he was clean when we were together, but I thought if there was anybody that it could have come from, it had to be him. And it turned out he was positive and he had contacted the, well, he gave my information to a clinic, which is what you should do. Yeah. When you find out that you're positive, you just give your information to the clinic and they will gladly reach out to past partners and let them know. And so that they should go get tested as well. Unfortunately, for some reason, I wasn't contacted. I don't blame him for that. I think he did exactly what he should do. It's a really awkward thing to have to contact past partners and say you I'm positive yeah, for course, HIV yeah. and you've been exposed. Yeah. So I think what he did was fine. You were um, really I sick, was, no? Yeah, I was really sick, yeah. I had the fevers, the body aches, I couldn't eat. I hadn't eaten I just felt like I hadn't eaten in like a month. I had the night sweats. I had thrush at that point too and this first doctor I saw who wasn't an HIV specialist told me to to chew cinnamon gum to help with the thrush. I mean it was like the most insane when I look back at it I'm like wow, like I had AIDS right then, but didn't know it. So then once my blood work finally came in, my CD4 count, my viral load, then it was known then that I had AIDS because I was I was also positive for pneumonia. So my CD4 was 84, was under 200, and I had an AIDS-defining illness. I had pneumonia. And so then I knew a week later I had AIDS. People get confused and they think that I, I contracted HIV and then a week later I had AIDS. Not like that. I just found out I had HIV and then a week later because of blood results coming in, I found out I had, I had AIDS with another blow. Oh my God, I have AIDS now. Oh my, like what else could go wrong? You know, and the oh thought of like my future, I'm a single mom. Am I going to be able to work? Like everything runs through your mind. Like the world stops. Everybody's going to know I am going to be talked about. I'm going to be, no one's going to want to be my friend anymore. My family's going to think I'm an awful mother, uh, you know, a, a bad person. You know, what, what must I have done to for this to happen because I don't know anybody in my life who has HIV. So I must have really done a lot of something wrong to make this happen. Truly, that wasn't what it was. It was just, I was in a relationship with the person. Not that that matters. I, I shouldn't always say that, but it, you know, I was in a relationship with him. I mean, it's just, it happens by sex. I mean, that's what happens. And it could have just been one time with this person, but it, it wasn't. It was repeated times and that's probably how it happened. Yeah. Um, your odds obviously increase if it's like repeated because you're exposed more, but he didn't know he had it. And so then I get the AIDS diagnosis and it's just, well, how am I going to move forward with this? I'm not one to keep a secret. So I did, I told family members from the very beginning, like I have HIV, like my brother is a musician. He's a past, he had a drug problem for years and years. He's been clean and sober for years and years. So I knew I could like tell him it wouldn't like shock him. Like he knows about HIV, not that he wasn't using needles, but he's like in the world of rock and roll. It's like they kind of know that if you are around people who use drugs. So it was like I knew there were people that would get it, but I knew I had like this part of my family that's very religious and, you know, everybody has stayed married through the years. And like, how are they going to think? What are they going to think of this? And do I keep moving forward? But I did. I kept telling everybody. I was like, you're not going to believe this. I have AIDS. Like, I cannot believe this. And then I would tell friends and really, really close friends. And then. I started realizing I was telling acquaintances, I was telling neighbors. I just felt like 
I didn't want to be a secret. And I thought the more I knew about what was happening with me and well, it took time. It was a whole process. And because I got better along the way, and that was what really made me feel like I need to talk about this. I need people Mm -hmm. to know. One of the things that uh, that, that I find interesting about your story, uh, Jennifer, is the fact that you couldn't believe that this happened to you, but eventually it did. So basically meaning that it can happen to anybody. Because when I was in South Africa in 2009, I, I would have never thought, I mean, and I cheated on my ex-girlfriend, but I would have never thought that this could ever happen to me. And I still feel today that a lot of the mindset of the young people, especially who are the most vulnerable, still believe that this cannot happen to them. It's like, you know, not me. It's, it's impossible until you are in that bed in hospital and you, you, know, you get the news, right? Just something important that I want to transmit to, uh, especially young people who listen to this podcast that it can happen to anybody. HIV does not discriminate. Sure to disagree with that a little bit, honestly, because I think statistically I am in a group that's very, very uncommon. So I don't think it's that. It's not. It's considered rare in the United States in general. Statistically, this isn't something that happens. It's typically transmitted between men because of the transmission route. It's typically yeah, that's true, yeah. So I, I don't feel like it's as com- It's not common. Because I don't know anybody in my life who has HIV. This isn't something that like, oh, my aunt had it, my sister had it. No, it's not like herpes. Like this is really uncommon. So I think what happened to me is very uncommon and rare. So, but not, that doesn't mean people shouldn't be safe when they're having sex or that they shouldn't test. Everybody should, but there's high risk for sure. And there's low risk. And I think that I was involved with somebody who had had high risk behavior. So that, that, then I became high risk. Or I was exposed to somebody with HIV, you know, and that that's what happened. But how many other times was I exposed to HIV in my life? Could be zero. It could have just been that one person. You know, yeah, I don't think possible. like it's that common. But again, everybody should be testing. Yeah. Now, I mean, you, you talk about your partner and his reaction. Can you describe a little bit how that was? And did you at any point uh, feel afraid that he may leave you? And how was the relationship with him today? Oh. I'm madly in love with this guy and I'm like oh my like could I look any worse I'm already sick as a dog I'm pale I look awful and now basically you know he's gonna look at me and all he's gonna see is HIV I mean how could why would you want to be with somebody like that like Mm -hmm. I just can't even imagine how he could wrap that around his brain so for the first few weeks and you know I gotta say I never asked him one time are you gonna stay with me I I didn't want to look I didn't want to beg I kind of didn't want to know either. And so I just sort of held my breath. I knew he would be here for about another month because that was during the time that he's here during the winter. And then my mom came to come take care of me. And I think he tried to kind of stay out of the way and do his thing. And really, my mom took care of me for the most part, which was what I wanted. I didn't want him seeing me like this. It was awful. Like, this this isn't the sexy woman, you know, I'm like sick as a dog. And this is because of another man I'd been with. And now it's like interfering with our life. Like, I mean, it's awful. And I didn't ever ask him, but when he left about a month later, I been I was doing much better by then. And I remember him just, you know, hugging and kissing me and, you know, saying, you know, and he posed for pictures with me and he knew I put it on Facebook. He was fine with all of that. He wasn't, it, it was really surprising to me how he was okay with me being vocal about it on my Facebook. Cause that was where it all started when I, 
went mm-hmm. social with it. And he just said, get better. I remember he drove off and I thought, well, he could drive because he was driving back to Canada. And I thought, well, he could never answer my phone call again. And then, you know, he did all his typical texting me and showing me where he was along the way on his route home. And I thought, okay, those are good signs. <laughs> yeah. 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 Didn't disappear, and then uh, you know I went and visited him. I flew out to Canada about two months after that, and nothing had changed. I mean, I you know the really the true test is how is he going to treat me when we're intimate, and nothing had changed. I knew then that he still he had accepted this, and he loved me regardless. And oh, I should say that he was negative which is unfortunately for you, because it's hard for you, you you got this from a woman. So he didn't get it from me. He's been with me for a year. But yeah, it was like, he just was, I don't know, he was okay with it. It was a thing he had to go home and kind of think about more. He needed to like wrap his brain around it. And he was glad that I was open about it with people because he didn't want this to be a secret. He thought it's better to have it out there. People can look it up on the internet. They can see what it is and they can accept it or they can't, but it's better for it not to be a secret. So I had that initial support that a lot of people don't have and still don't have in their relationships. They don't want their partners out openly because I know a lot of people who are HIV positive who would love to be public about it to help stigma, but their partners wish that they would just be quiet because they don't want to be yeah, I know that situation. Yeah. What about your children, uh, Jennifer? How do you talk to them and how do they deal with uh, with the fact that their mother has HIV? It's just been seamless. I really have to say it's been seamless. They don't know about the 80s. They don't have that. Um, yeah, that collective memory. That, yeah. To them, to my son, who was seven or eight at the time, it was just mom was sick and now she's better and she takes a pill a day and, and it's called HIV and we don't, you know, that's not a word that is, it's, it's a nothing word in our house. It's like, it's used in a joking manner because to us, it doesn't affect me. And it, they understand the stigma completely and they find it ridiculous because they see how I am and how it affected me and how I'm fine with it. And so we have a very healthy relationship with my dormant virus that doesn't affect them in any way. And they see how it doesn't affect me. My 15 year old, and my, she was, I think, oh God, what was she? She's 16 now, so she was 12 at the time. They're the same. They love their mom. They're happy their mom's alive and fine. And they have no problem talking about HIV. They've been able to like educate people who don't know, or like even her, their friends' parents who misunderstood how things are with HIV and they know the difference between HIV and AIDS. You know, they're very educated on it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very interesting and beautiful what you say because there's a there's another person that has come on this podcast. His name is Mark van der Merwe. He's South African and he lost his brother of AIDS mm-hmm. in the 90s. The stigma mm-hmm. was very high because he told me that his father never recognized that his son has died of AIDS. There was something else. It was not AIDS. When we were talking about my situation, you know, I have four sisters and two brothers and a divorced father and a divorced mother. And when I got diagnosed Mm -hmm. in 2009, my mother came to pick me up. They never really spoke to each other. So HIV became like this topic of silence and shame as well. And for 10 years, nobody ever talked about it. I think it was through this campaign and the fact that I disclosed my status that all of a sudden, the way you do with your children, right? You just, yeah, you just inform them, but you talk about it in, in, in an empowering and uplifting way. They see you and things totally change. And today my family is completely behind me. And it's beautiful because I I believe that's an incredible support. You know, family is very, very important. Family matters, really. And I think for some people living with HIV, I see sometimes they don't have that support that I would like them to have, have, right? 
And it's a pity sometimes mm-hmm. that they don't have that. Very, very lucky to have the support I've had. I, I know too many people, unfortunately, that don't have that support, that have to keep it a secret, that can't share with people because they feel rejected and they're treated differently and so they can't share it. And it's, yeah, I'm really lucky. I'm yeah. really lucky. Now, at, at some point you decided to share your diagnosis with your Facebook community. And then in August, I think in 2016, you produced your first YouTube video. You basically told your story mm-hmm. to let people know you had HIV, that HIV could reach anyone, but also that you could lead a normal life. So why did you decide to go public with your status? And has it always been your intention to become the activist you are today? Gosh, no. <laughs> yeah, I just remember feeling like from the initial diagnosis and like talking you know, to close family and friends and everybody was sympathetic and we were on this journey together kind of. Um, I thought, you know, the people on Facebook knew I'd been sick and I had just put it out there that I had pneumonia. Yeah. And I took this leap of faith about uh, three weeks later, Eric was leaving to go back to Canada and I thought, I need to do this. I, I, too many people know, and I just thought I don't want people talking about me in the community. I work in the school district, and I thought, you know, I don't need moms finding out and then, you know, calling the school and having a problem with me. I just want to be open. And I want people to understand what this is. So I put out a post on Facebook, and I remember just writing it very carefully. I put some pictures up there and, you know, gave hope, told people, I mean, I got into CD4 counts and viral loads. I wanted everybody to understand these are the new terms that I deal with now, and this is what it is. And um, I remember just shaking as I went to hit post. I had no idea what would happen, and I just got uh, nonstop positive, like, wow, oh, my God, Jennifer, thank you for sharing this, and we love you, and it's just amazing support. And mm-hmm. I know that isn't always going to be that way for everybody. I'm really very privileged to be, you know, I mean, I'm a woman with it. I don't have, I know gay men have the problem of already having to deal with the fact that they're gay and having people reject them. And then they've got to say HIV and top of it and deal with that. That isn't, that wasn't my scenario. So I think I came from a more sympathetic viewpoint for people. And so it made it easier for me to be public what happened was, is I really wanted to tell my full story, and the only way to do that was to put it on a um, YouTube video because that was where I could put down something that was a longer format. It turned out to be about 30 minutes, and I just talked into my phone, and I asked Eric, you know, this was about five months later. This is after I knew he and I were good. I knew that he was fine with me talking about it, but at that point, I didn't know anybody else who was HIV positive. I knew nobody, and I was like, you know, I need to put out a video because I'm hoping, number one, I'll find another woman who has gone yeah. through what I've gone through. Yeah, maybe, yeah, I understand that. Maybe, maybe that'll happen. I thought, of course, I found like so many at this point, but that, or that I just wanted people to know the whole story. And I also thought if for anybody in the future that if they see this, maybe it will encourage them to test or they'll know that, oh, I had those symptoms too. I should go, just go test. So those are my reasons for putting it out. And then I start that was in August of 2016. And then, yeah, then I started getting subscribers and I was like laughing, like, what do they want from me? Who are these? I don't even know. Look, <laughs> at the time, I only had like 300 friends and they were all, you know, like high school friends and family. I didn't have like a big Facebook at all. And so then I have strangers that are like subscribing and I'm like, what are they subscribing to? Like, I don't even know what to do with this. So it just kind of went forward from there very organically. I just started answering questions and did like a part two and a part three and I mean, the information that I wanted to put out, I didn't have enough time to even make the videos. I wanted to just, I, I don't even know, I have like, I think I have over 200 right now, but 
I just had so many people asking me things and it was like, I wanted to do what I could to help. And so if I get the information out and I didn't know what I was doing, I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying, you know, it's like, I'm always learning and it's a process, but I just kept going with it because I thought, wow, this is something people want. There's a need for sure. People are not aware of so much of this and there's a lot of hate. I mean, that's where I felt the first pangs of stigma were all on social media for YouTube because it's so anonymous and people said whatever they wanted. And it was like, oh, wow. Like every morning I'd get up and it would be like, I take a deep breath before I'd open the comments on YouTube. What is going to be said to me today? Like, you know, you're a freaking, you're a whore, you know, you're disgusting. How can you be on here talking about it? You should be ashamed of yourself. Like so many comments. It was like, I, and I remember just thinking, I'm just trying to help. Like yeah, I didn't of course. do this. Like I didn't know that there were going to be people that would hate me because of it. And there were, and I still get that today, but it's I have a lot more on my side now than I than against me. But yeah, it was a really confusing time because it was like, do I keep moving forward? This, this is really hard to face these things that people are saying to me. But I knew at the same time, there were people that were in my corner and saying, please keep talking about it. Yeah. But and you have, you have 47, almost 47,000 subscribers today, right? I just hit 47,000, yeah. Oh, wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's I think that's yeah. incredible. And I think that's also proof that you actually are fulfilling a need because, you know, yeah. 47,000 is actually I mean, it's a substantial number of people that are really interested in what you have to say. What, yeah. what do you find most challenging as an activist, Jennifer? You know, the fact that you have to deal with the comments, obviously, is, is, is a, obviously a big thing. I mean, if you, you have to have thick skin, but are there other things that you find challenging as an activist? That is challenging. I think the most challenging part is the need for help. People want my help, and I cannot do it alone. I have to, like, I can't answer everybody. It's like everybody wants personal help from me, and I am just doing this by my head myself. And so that, to me, I fight with that all the time in my head, how to handle this. And it's just, it's overwhelming. And so I just know that there's people need help, and I can't do it alone. And I know there's, like, I put as much information as I can about, like, where to go for help, but... For the most part, that's where I feel this is the hardest for me. It's just the amount of people that contact me and how I can't handle everybody by myself. I'm just me, you know, it's just me alone. And I'm I'm just trying to raise three kids and, you know, work to keep the roof over my head. I mean, this is a non-paying job. I'm like, you know, and it's that part of it. Of course. It's really hard. That's hard, yeah. Do do you think, I mean, I have a feeling, but maybe I'm wrong because I disclosed my status now just recently in September. I do have a feeling that more and more people are publicly disclosing their status. Like there was recently also Garrett Thomas, the famous rugby player in the UK, who went live on social media, Mm -hmm. created a lot of buzz, which is very good because he's a a role model. And I I believe, you know, know, he's, he's making a big impact. But do you think in the era of you as you, undetectable equals untransmittable, do you expect society to to take a more open stance towards HIV? And do you feel that more people will be disclosing their status? Or would you say yeah, it'll, it'll take probably years before we get to a situation where we have full normalization of, of HIV? I think it's still going to take a long time. This has been ingrained in our, I still have stigma. I mean, I realize that it's still there, even though I know all about HIV and, and myself. And But I think we have social media now. We have more people that are coming out of the woodwork that, you know, and Gareth, I don't think even wanted to be public. I think that he had some pressure. and Yeah, he was um, you know, forced a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think it was his choice, but I'm grateful that he's speaking about it. And I mean, look at that beautiful specimen that he is, and he's got HIV. So that, like, right there, just looking at him, you can see him and see, wow, he's healthy. Like he looks, he looks fine. So yeah, yeah of course. Looking at him, 
Yeah, and just being, knowing he has HIV says so much alone. But um, yeah, I think with social media, more people can take that opportunity. And if they see other people do it, that gives them the strength to do it. But unfortunately, again, you have to have support all around you to do it. You know, that's the one thing is you have to, like, if you're married, then you have to have your partner support, obviously, or your children, or because it, it becomes something that they're involved in. And also, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's not an easy decision. It isn't. I know that for a lot of people, it's a very tough one. But I know most people, a lot of people would like to be public. Because who wins if we're not public? Stigma does. We don't want stigma to win. That's beautifully said. I think it's beautifully said. If stigma wins, we all lose, right? And I do think, you know, I mean, it's obviously a big step and a big decision. But I also do feel now with my family, there was a lot of fear, I would say, uh, you know, even my mother last year, she was like, would you do this because people are going to say this and that about you? She was worried. Well, I mean, mother's worried. That's what they do. Right. But she cared about me. But now she sees yeah. it's like you have received hundreds of positive reactions. And I'm very happy that it's out there because I can li- I can live an authentic life. You know, I don't have to hide anymore, you know, because before I was living two lives. And that's, I believe, something yeah. for, you know, that people living with HIV have to deal with all the time. You know, they have to, like, almost be two different persons, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. I Yeah, I can't even imagine. And I feel guilty about it sometimes that I'm in a position where it was very easy for me. Or maybe it's just who I am. I don't know. I'm, I've never been one to keep a good secret. So I'm, yeah. like, you know, I, I, you know, that's kind of how I am. But. I do feel so, like, sometimes I do feel really guilty for all the people that I know that can't share it, and they have to, like, that's got to do something to you emotionally, psychologically, that you have to keep this burden of, like, not telling anybody, and I I can't imagine how hard that would be, Yeah, you know? Jennifer, you're running a a Facebook group, a private group for HIV-positive women, aren't you? That's been growing, right? What what is so special about that group, and what, what are you trying to accomplish with it? It started with the first woman who contacted me from South Africa, and she was in the hospital at the time. She had AIDS, and she said, I just saw your YouTube video. And it was like she was the first one. Oh, my God, I found my woman. I was my first wife. <laughs> and she's not public about her status. She's out there on social media, but she's not public about it. Anyways, I started to have this, gosh, every two weeks or so, another woman would find me and contact me, and I have it too. Oh, my God. And I mean, so I'm now I'm like talking to all these women separately, and it was like 15 at one point. I was like, oh, my God. I, like, I, like, I want them all to know each other because this is like, this is amazing. Like, they should all know each other. So I asked everybody individually, hey, what do you guys think about like going on a group on Facebook? It'll be private and secret, but then you guys can all talk to them amongst each other. You know, some were from... Nairobi, somewhere from Kansas. I don't know. We were like, we're all over the place. England, it was like this mishmash, but we all had HIV and like there was no difference there. We all had stigma. We all had the same thing. So I thought, let's just see what happens. And oh, I, I get choked up every time I think about it, Jonathan. I fell to my knees when I got that group together and they all started talking and I lost it. I was like, I did something really special was happening. It was amazing. Uh, I get so choked up about it because it was just so special. They were all talking to each other. It was like, you know, I don't want to use their names, but this one was talking to this one. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like they all, we all get it. And they yeah, needed yeah. it. They all needed that support. The support was, you have to have support and to know that there's someone else out there in the world that understands you and is going through exactly what you're going through. And you know, you can lean on them for support is amazing. So They've trickled in over the last three years, and I have over 200 women now from all over the world, and it's a safe place for them 
to share their feelings and things that have gone that have happened to them that they want to just vent about it on there. Like, you know, I met this man and I told him and, you know, he wasn't accepting of it or great stories, you know, that somebody was accepting of it. And it was so amazing. It gives everybody hope. And where do I want to go with it? I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing with it. (laughs) No, but I think it's, it's something, it's something so special. I mean, I can hear it from the way you talk about it. And I can only imagine like 200 women from all over the world to be able to talk about that and to find that support because it's, it's what you say, you've repeated yeah. it like four or five times already. It's the support that, you know, of the people that surround us, that close to us, that's really, really important yeah. for us to move forward. Because I was speaking to a Belgian activist uh, today, actually, and he said to me, like, we should uh, definitely normalize HIV, but not trivialize it. It, it is still HIV, you know, it's not like a, we have like a bladder infection or something. It's still HIV. And, uh, you know, we have to, yeah, we have to remain vigilant and but within that context, try to give support to the people that surround us. I think it's beautiful what you're doing, mm-hmm. Jennifer, really. I really admire you for that. I think it's incredible. Oh, but, I, I, you know, in, in regards to World AIDS Day, do you think that there is something special or specific that the HIV community can be proud of and celebrate this World AIDS Day 2019, in your oh, opinion? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, yeah. U equals U is just getting on the map more and more. I'm, I mean, I'm hearing about it on podcasts that have nothing to do with HIV, and I'm just like, oh, my God, like, there is like like people understand the, the terminology and so I'm really excited about you you will do because I just think it gives hope to everybody with HIV it lessens stigma I mean there's still how many people in the world that have HIV right now that have no idea that they won't transmit it if they're undetectable I mean it's obviously better for your health to be undetectable I think we've come in the last 35 years from a place of real despair to hope and I think you know, we're in a completely different place with it and thankfully, we have things like social media to get yeah to get the message across. There. Absolutely, yeah, because we can't count on you know ABC News to do anything for us because they're not helping us <laughs> anyway. You know, <laughs> we can't do it ourselves. We really do, and how to be from the ground up because there's not really anybody helping us get the word out. And uh, but it's very it's amazing to have like actors uh, like Jonathan Jonathan Van Ness. Yeah, from Queer Eye. I mean, just you know having these people come out and and educate the public on what it is. I'm always grateful for World AIDS Day because it brings awareness and it lets everybody know that if this is still here today. I know I remember I had somebody comment on one of my channels or on one of my videos and they said, is this still an issue today? Like, why are you doing these videos? I'm like, oh my gosh, really? <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. Some people think it went away and they don't know that it's No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, so. What would you describe as, I mean, in your own words, the the biggest challenges in regards to HIV today, especially in the United States, because you're an American, which is obviously being different than being European. Yeah, well, for healthcare alone, we we don't have the same kind of healthcare. I happen to have free medical healthcare because I'm a single mom in California, so I have something called Medi-Cal. It's low-income health insurance I've had for since my divorce. But for others who have job where they're, you know, they have insurance through their job or they don't have insurance at all. They have to run through a bunch of hoops to try to get their medication. It's accessible, but sometimes it takes a lot of work to get it a lot more than it should. And it that can keep people from, you know, getting in care for sure. Exactly. They have all these hoops they have to jump through and that it shouldn't be that hard. It really shouldn't. Um, Again, I'm lucky. My doctor's, you know, right down the street from me. I don't live 60 miles away from the nearest clinic. I'm like close to everything, but there are different social determinants of health that keep people from being in care. And in the United States, I feel like it's more of an issue 
than other parts of the world because our healthcare is just it's not equal across the board. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, yeah. it's all yeah. different based on how much money you make, where you work, and yeah, it's not free healthcare for everybody. Yeah. So it's, it's more of a challenge for yeah. sure. What is your greatest dream, Jennifer, when you, I mean, if I say, okay, in the next 10 years for the HIV community, what would you like to see happen in the next 10 years? Oh, well, I mean, a cure would be really awesome. Of course, we all like, <laughs> you know, hope and wish for that. I mean, I did recently read about, uh, you know, the injection and that that could keep us suppressed. The long-term injection that, that they would give people sounds to me like more like a vaccine type of, of, of like a functional cure, basically. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing for sure. Just would love to see the, the stigma change. But again, I've said many times, it's like picking at a mountain with a toothpick, but I would still, you know, love to see the stigma change. I'll never shut up about it. I'm always going to be like, you know, this is a chronic manageable condition today. This is what it looks like to have HIV. And, um, you know, yeah, I just want to yeah. keep that positivity going with it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, a last message to people living with HIV. Anybody, for example, uh, who is newly diagnosed, what would you tell them? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I did a video on this. I basically have just said, you know, uh, take your time with it, get support, know that no one's going to look at you and know that you have it, even though you think that you will not always think about it nonstop. It will fade away and you'll learn to live with it. And you'll probably want to talk about it and educate people. Cause I know a lot of people that when they first get it, they go through the turmoil of like the shame and the whys. And now you're on the other side of the fence. You're not a person not living with HIV, now you have the three letters that are associated with you. Learn to embrace it and know that you you could be a big help to people just by educating others on it. So, yeah, I hope that's Fantastic. That's okay. <laughs> All right, Jennifer, that's it. I don't know if you want to add anything else, uh, but I think you've you've given us some great, great content. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. No, I, I feel like I'm a windbag and I've probably said more than I need to. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally fine. But I think our audience is going to love it. I, I, I really I really think so. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jennifer. Okay, thank you so much, Jonathan. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Cheers. So yes, a big, big thank you to Jennifer Vaughn for coming on our podcast and for sharing so openly and passionately about her journey and the incredible impact her work has made on people living with HIV today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. And let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. 
It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.